0: Chapters 4 through 7 are fascinating in part because we start with chapters 4 and 5 with an enormous emphasis on the authority of God. Right? The sovereignty of God is broken into two major components. One is his authority, his right to rule. The other is his power, his capacity, his ability to rule. And so in chapters 4 and 5, there's an emphasis on the authority of God, and the authority of Christ. Chapter 4, we deal with the Samaritan woman and her desire for satisfaction, and there's this principle that Christ is the living water. And also, there's an emphasis on right worship there and a teaching that the Samaritans had invented doctrines and worship, and that the Jews had received the worship and doctrine that had been revealed. And so there was an emphasis on the regulative principle, that we should only teach and only worship what has been appointed in the word. Chapter 5 has a similar emphasis with the healing that occurs and the authority of Christ over the Sabbath. that he has the authority to determine the day. He has the authority to authoritatively teach the proper keeping. But here we are in chapter 6. And in chapter 6, although there is some discussion of authority, for example, the title I've given to this sermon, the seal of the Father, which is an emblem of authority given to the Son. The emphasis is on the exercise of that authority. The actual rule. The exercise of power. And that God the Father is the one who sovereignly chooses who will eat the bread of life and drink the blood of Christ. There's an emphasis on power and the exercise of it. So the discourse on authority in chapter five has a sign of healing, and the discourse on power has a sign of the provision of bread. And so providence and salvation, God's control over events and God's control over salvation, are we get emphasized here. So let me review with you now the first 15 verses, and let's talk about that text. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. So notice that so he's in the north, by the Sea of Galilee. He is dealing with a lot of people following him, and they've seen signs, plural, of healing those who are sick or were sick. That's the sign. They were sick. They're not sick anymore. Now, that means we have one example at Bethesda, but there are multiple healings, and we know that from other texts, but the amount of healing that's occurring is something that's gathering huge crowds. So there's not just rumors, there's not just reports going around, but there are witnesses of multiple events, event after event, after event, miraculous healing after miraculous healing. And so the crowds get enormous. And he goes far away from Jerusalem into the north, and he keeps doing things that are meant to reduce the number of people that are following him. Going far distances is pretty good at making people go away from you. Going into the countryside is a way of making it less convenient to be near you. And then waiting until people are rather hungry to provide. You you imagine some of the early desirers of food might have already left. But if if the whole crowd is hungry, some people have been hungry longer than others. Verse 4. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude come toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to, the te- to test him, for he, knew, he himself knew what he would do. Now, the response, right, this is, this is a test. What did Jesus expect? What did he expect the test to result in? Well, he might have expected Philip to have read, 2 Kings chapter four. Okay. Second Kings chapter four is a fascinating chapter in relation to this. We have the same sort of miracle being done. Second Kings chapter four. And I have a written, written down that it's Elijah, but I'm worried it's actually Elisha. I'm, I'm doubting myself here what I wrote down. So I think it's Elisha. But anyways, uh, second Kings chapter four, the what we have is a widow who has a limited amount of oil, an insufficient amount to really feed for long, and, and God supernaturally makes the oil last for a longer period of time. She's a son who dies, and and Elijah re- resurrects, or Elisha resurrects the son. There's the uh, there's a pot of stew that's being eaten by some students of prophets, and it seems to have, I think they say, death in the pot. I think that's a way of saying uh, maybe there's food poisoning, uh, or you know the, the food has gone bad, or there's poison of some variety. The point is uh, there's, there's death in the pot, which is not a compliment for cooking generally. Um, so what we have here is a, a supernatural. There's an adding of a little bit of flour and that's used as a prophetic sign. And then there's, there's the healing of the food or the purging or purifying of the food. Um, and then they're able to eat it. And then uh, there are 20 loaves of bread. And I think it's all listed as barley bread there which is the same as the type of bread that's used here. and Barley bread would be the cheapest kind of bread. And so there's these 20 loaves and it's used to feed 100 men. And typically, barley loaves would not be huge loaves. So we're not talking about like you know, some like ma- massive like French baguette thing where you're just like, OK, that's great. You know, this is we're talking smaller loaves. Um, R.C. Sproul says that these loaves would typically be the size of Twinkies, probably didn't taste as good. And and so these small loaves are, you know, you have 20 of them feeding 100 men. Um, That's a miracle of a similar variety. And so these these food miracles are common back there in 2 Kings 4. So perhaps Philip, knowing that Jesus is a prophet greater than Elijah or Elisha or, or Moses or any of the prophets prior, might have thought, Lord, perhaps you could use this as a time to display a sign to give of some limited food and extend it out. But Philip's response is to think of the logistics supply chain and the cost of running it efficiently and he says 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little Okay, well just to give you a sense of it uh, denarii Single denarius was basically a day's wage generally speaking for somebody who was like a field laborer So you have a strong healthy man working for a day That guy gets a denarius now, on the Jewish calendar with holy days, you end up with something like 280 days available for work in a year. Okay, so we're talking more than two thirds years wages. So depending on how you calculate the value of a day's wage at the time, that could be the modern equivalent of somewhere between $10,000 and $50,000 to get this 200 denarii. So in other words, a pretty large sum of money is not gonna feed these people, right? I mean, you imagine going to the store and you're like, I'm gonna get, you know, just Wonder Bread here. Okay, what's how many loaves of Wonder Bread could I get? How many people can I feed with this thing? You could feed a lot of people with $10,000 or $50,000 of Wonder Bread. They'd have a lot of blood sugar afterwards, but you'd feed a lot of people. So, that idea that the cost um, to feed these people would be pretty enormous. So, this is emphasizing the importance and the difficulty. Of being able to feed them. And that would be just uh, to get a little bit for everybody. Verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Okay, so again, these are probably small loaves. And two small fish. The two small fish... Would be principally. When you think about small fish. What are small fish? Things like you know anchovies, type of thing. So the the idea of having small fish is not so much to have fish be a major component of the meal, but it's to give some sort of a flavoring, right, to make it so that the bread is not so boring and bland of a meal. And the principal way that you preserve meat at this time is is salt. So the flavoring, you know, you'd go here's meat, it's salty. Here's bread to eat it with. But what are they among so many? Nothing. They're nothing among so many. It's, it's interesting that Andrew would even mention it. Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down. In number about 5,000. Okay, so 5,000 men. the patriarchal nature of things was typically that you count the men and where they represent the families that are present or whatever. So if we're looking at full families being present and there's 5,000, I mean the average family size, if you're looking at people overwhelmingly getting married and then having children um, and you're looking at large numbers of children typically being born, you're talking about 10, 20, 30,000 people especially because you're not counting men who are under the age of 20. But most of the estimates when you read commentators are something like 10,000, 15,000, or 20,000. Those are the numbers that people typically estimate as the number of people that would actually be there if you're counting 5,000 men. So it's more than just feeding 5,000, which is impressive in itself with five five Twinkies and a couple of sardines. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, a number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he'd given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. And the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Think about this. All, power creator, all powerful creator of the universe makes this bread and these fish extend out to be able to feed 5,000 men and all the accompanying women and children and afterwards has them collect the remnants. Collect the remnants. What is this about? The collecting of the fragments or the remnants is a display of a Christian or Calvinist frugality It is a display of care of provision. There's 12 baskets, which is interesting, sufficient to give a basket to each of his apostles. There's not a presuming upon God. This is Jesus in his human nature displaying his obedience that God has provided and to not treat God's provision with a lack of care, but to rather look upon the remnants as provision from God for the future. And so this idea of saving, investing, frugality, caring for things, intelligently managing resources are on display there. I mean if this, if this were you, I mean, wouldn't you be tempted to just go, I mean, looks like we're not gonna have a food problem. Seems like collecting this is kind of a waste of time. This, that would be the temptation to despise the provision of God in that remaining bits. So this this provision gives a meal to all of these people to the point of satisfaction physically; they are full. There's leftovers, and then there's leftovers to carry, and it's provision for the ministry. Now, at the same time, we've read about the fact that. This bread is not the bread that lasts. This is a temporary bread. The bread that lasts is the bread of life. It's Jesus himself. And we talk about how God uses that bread, gives that bread to those who are given to the Son and causes them to partake in it and to believe and to have life. And there's this preserving. So I think that this is a, a foreshadowing. This is symbolically also done. This preserving of this bread that's left over is pointing forward to the fact that God's giving of faith, which is a grabbing hold of and believing the word, is also not lost. There's no waste there. That's going to be explicitly taught. To draw that out from this as just an example without the context of the immediate following teaching that says that explicitly would be to allegorize the text in a way that's not appropriate. But I'm suggesting that since it's explicitly taught, that's giving us A little foretaste of what's about to be taught. Verse 13, Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments of five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Now that's a powerful display to have the end result be more than what you started with. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now the prophet, that the prophet... Is an idea of this is the prophet who was prophesied that there would be a prophet like Moses that would come. This is the prophet. And that is the Messiah. The prophet, priest, king. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. This perceiving that they were going to force to make him king is not just some supernatural sense. This is, they're going, this guy's the prophet, which means he's also the king. Okay? The prophet is the Messiah. And the Messiah is not just a prophet, he's the prophet who is also the high priest and the king. So they're going, okay, we're going to make him king. So Jesus understands that they're realizing who he is and that these people are worldly minded. They care more about the bread that perishes than the bread that endures. And they believe that they should use force to establish the kingdom of God as though the power came from below. But the kingdom of God is established by power from heaven. Christ's enthronement does not depend upon force of arms at the hands of men. He is enthroned by God after he conquers Satan. He is resurrected and ascended and put at the right hand of the Father. Then, Christian kings ought to use the physical sword to resist evil. But the origin of his rule is not from men, which does not mean that his rule does not have any place for the civil magistrate. So He perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. He doesn't want to be forced into being a king by unworthy followers. He doesn't want their actions to be attributed to him. He is concerned about the things that they would do in the process of seeking to make him king and the way in which the glory would be taken from God and the way in which it would prevent him from dying. He came to die. Furthermore, these men are tiresome. Their unbelief is wearisome. It is vexatious to the human soul of Christ. And he does not entrust himself to men. And he is not refreshed by men. And so he seeks to be alone, to have communion with God by himself. If you fill your days with good works, you will find yourself tired at the end of them. You will also find that you are frequently disappointed with the fruit of what you hoped would be accomplished. And you will find that the time with God alone is an important and powerful balm to your soul that gives you strength, that you have food that others know not of, that you might run and not grow weary and be lifted up on wings like eagles. The Lord Jesus Christ gives us the example of seeking communion with God, even when others would seek to honor him. His food is not the honors of men. The accolade given by a mortal is not that which gives new life to his spirit. Communion with God is a rest from the presence of men. Verse 16 gives us one of the signs, uh, walking on water. But there's also um, in this text an I am statement that is never listed in the I am statement. I don't really understand it, so I'm going to show you where it is. So I'm calling it I am statement zero. Because other people don't count it typically. As one of the I am statements. So we'll we'll talk about that. So verse 16. Now when evening came. His disciples went down to the sea. Got into the boat. And went over the sea. Toward Capernaum. And it was already dark. And Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose. Because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles. Literally the. Is twenty-five or thirty stadia? They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were afraid. Okay, so the who he is is not necessarily certain. Seeing somebody on the on the sea, if you see somebody out there, right, you're you're thinking this is either a miracle or this is a demon. Right, that would be the response. And if you're out there on the sea, uh, Alone. You can't really get away. You're stuck in a boat. The idea of a demon being out there would be horrifying. This visible manifestation of a demon. They're afraid. But he said to them, It is I. That's ego and me. Okay, that's an I am. All the other I am statements, we say ego and me. I am that I am. And that's the Greek translation. When you see the, when when when. the, When Yahweh, when when God, when the Lord manifests himself to Moses and he says I am that I am, that gets translated in the Septuagint into the Greek as ego me," And so that's why the ego me" statements are called the I am statements because they're assertions, they're affirmations of Christ's divinity. He's saying I am the eternal one. I am the self-defining one. I am the one who is unlike any other. I am the holy one. That the best way for you to understand who I am is to understand who I am and not to liken me to others. It is I. I am that I am. Do not be afraid. Now that's also the do not be afraid. The idea that the Lord or Yahweh, the I am is with you. Therefore, do not be afraid is a common thing. You see that in Joshua, for example. So this statement of conquering and then the conquering, the dominion that he manifests is a dominion over the sea and the storms. He's walking on the sea in the midst of a storm. He's in the midst of the sea in the midst of a storm walking on the water. He asserts his divinity and he calms the storm. They willingly receive him into the boat. You hear that from the other accounts the calming of the storm. And immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. And this is interpreted variously by commentators. The immediately getting there is either just quickly then, because the sea is calm, now they're able to get there quickly. Or it's that there's a supernatural work where they're taken there immediately. It'd be sort of like when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and Satan takes him to the top of the tower and elsewhere, and there's these takings, these supernatural transportings. And so it, it could be that. So it's either that the storm being calmed allows them to quickly complete the journey, or it is that there's a miracle of transportation that occurs. And they're willing receiving into the boat, commentators make much of this and talk about the idea of, you know, if you are in the midst of the storms of life, this idea of allowing Christ in, this acknowledging the receiving of Christ, the willingly asking him to be a part of what you are doing, seeking to submit to him and acknowledge his presence The way in which he helps to make it so that the transport is manageable. It helps to take away the fears in the midst of the storm. And so some commentators will say that there's no ending of the storm, but simply a removing of the fear. Others will say that there's the ending of the storm. And God is the one who powerfully helps us to be able to tolerate storms, trusting in him. Both are true. God controls circumstances. He gives blessings in this life. And he gives us courage and strength as we believe his promises That we might be able to go through those difficulties and the travails of life and to be unafraid. Page 4. So here is what's typically considered I am statement 1 at verse 35, and it's restated at verse 48. He says, I am the bread. So these are the ego and me statements that get counted for whatever reason. Verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. I love love John writing here, the way he just kind of like breathlessly interrupts himself. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread, after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw... That Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. They also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Okay. So Jesus just totally ignores their question. He just doesn't answer it. Because their question is, you didn't get in the boat? There weren't another boat? How, what, how did, what's the? What, do you, what did you do? How did you get here? And he just goes, all right. And he moves on. He doesn't want to talk to them about the fact that he walked on the sea, or called the storm, or caused teleportation of a boat. Right? These are not things he wants to discuss with them, because they are overly concerned about the signs. His goal is to offend them away. He's like, all right, we've been going, we went into the wilderness, there was hunger for a while, and there some of you still were there. And then, now that I've given you food, you just want material miracles to keep happening and provision." That's his concern. So his concern is to offend them away while strengthening those that are faithful and keeping Judas around to betray him. Now, one other thing I want to point out is it says earlier on in the passage we read that even with the breaking of that bread, there was a a prayer. And then again, it mentions... Near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. Twice. Reference to God giving thanks, Jesus giving thanks, sorry. Jesus giving thanks thanks to the Father. Jesus is God. He's the God-man. But he's giving thanks to the Father. And this giving thanks before eating. So some people sometimes ask, you know, why do we, why do we pray before meals? Well, we are supposed to give thanks for the provisions that God has given to us. Secondly, we obtain blessing on the things that God has provided for us by giving thanks. And thirdly, it is the approved example for us that in the eating of meals, there is a giving of thanks with it. The example of Christ here. And the emphasis twice. It's really interesting that in the event itself, it includes that. And secondly, in the recounting of it, it's summarized with the, they, you know, he gave the bread and gave thanks. It's that giving of thanks. So we should always give thanks for the things that God gives to us. And meals are a special moment. We pray for our daily bread, which is a symbol for the provision of everything that is needful for our duties. And so giving thanks for meals in particular is a powerful way of displaying and symbolizing in a moment the thanks that we're supposed to give for all of the provision of God. But it's an important part of the provision of God. And so it's important that we give thanks food. So they ask him, when did you get here? Verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now, in modern evangelicalism, the immediate response would be to say, how dare you read my intentions? Now, he is basing this judgment on what he has heard them say. They think he's the prophet. They want to make him king. Reports are getting back to him. They want to make him king because they think that he is going to be great at providing guns and butter. He is going to give all of the ordinary provisions that are necessary for the state. And the tax rate could be very, very low he take like you know, one coin and turn it into like, you know, thousands of them, right? It's basically the Federal Reserve. That's what they're hoping for. Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. So this type of line, for example, do not labor for the food which perishes, is sometimes used to support the idea of mendicant or impoverished orders, vows of poverty. I'm not going to work, I'm not going to have stable provision, I'm not going to prepare for the future, I'm going to not work for the food that perishes. Well, we are commanded elsewhere to work, that we might have something for ourselves and something to give to others. So, does the Bible just contradict itself? No. This is obviously saying, do not labor principally for the food which perishes. You can, you should, you are commanded to, you're obligated to, even from the dominion mandate, to work, to keep, to preserve, to subdue. You're commanded to do things, and there was this preserving of the food that was done. Wasn't it work that the apostles did to gather the fragments of the food and put it into a basket? Wasn't that a working for food that perishes? So, This is not a statement that it is wrong to do any work for material provision. The point is that material provision is less important than the spiritual provision. And therefore, our work should principally be focused upon the spiritual provision. So, in other words, the food that endures to everlasting life is more important than the food which perishes. And that food which endures to everlasting life is given... By the Son of Man. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. Setting a seal, when you're a king, setting a seal on something gives the authority of the king to that thing. Is this a decree? Okay, how do we know it's a seal of the king? Or how do we know it's a decree of the king? The seal of the king is on it. Is this an authority? Is this a person who has the power to act? On behalf of the king? How do we know? He's been given an emblem by the king to show his authority. The point is that all of the authority of God the Father has been placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has a marker of that authority. The marker of that authority would include things like all of the prophetic signs that pointed to him. All of the prophetic signs that he performed. All of his obedience to the law of God. All of his teaching that was accurate. His baptism and the voice from heaven that said, this is my son. These are all seals. These are all signs. These are all markers upon him. And because he has the authority of the father signified by the signs, he has the authority and the power to give the bread that endures to everlasting life. All of the eaters of it have everlasting life. So he addresses their motive for finding him. And talks to them about the wrong focus of their lives on the bread of the world. And viewing it as the highest good rather than the bread of life. And he argues to them that they ought to listen to him. Because he has authority to teach them. And he has authority and power to give them the life, the bread of life. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Okay, so this bread that endures to everlasting life is the word of God. And when it is believed, that is the analog for eating it. So if you believe the word, you have eaten the bread of life. Christ is the bread of life. He is the word. That's why in chapter one, that was emphasized so much. The unity of Christ with his teaching, right? The word in the beginning was the Logos. And what does he teach? The Logos. Okay, so the word is Christ. Christ is the word. When you believe his word, you believe him. When you believe his word, you are eating the bread of life. So the bread of this world is not the good. It is not the highest good. It is not the thing to be chased. It is not the thing always to be bought and never to be sold. The bread of life, the word of God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the gospel. That is the bread of life. That is never to be sold and always to be bought. We should focus our labor on knowing him. On eating his flesh and drinking his blood. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Okay? Remember earlier on, talking about the Sabbath, he said, I am working and my Father is working, even until now. Okay, well, that work includes, that, that work is providence. Because the work that was wrested from was creation. So the work that's continuing is providence. And a part of providence is controlling who gets faith. And this is that work that he does. The Father does the work of giving faith. So this answers two questions that are embedded. What must we do that we may work the works of God? So he defines the work of God, the works of God. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So believing the gospel, believing Christ, believing the revealed word about Christ is... That work of God that's sovereign. And when you believe, that's when you're able to do good works. You don't get to do anything that's good. You don't get to do anything that's useful to support the mission of God. You don't get to advance the glory of God as a willing participant, as a co-laborer, unless and until the Lord gives you faith. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? Right there. They're obsessed with getting more food for free. The desire for the buffet or the pot luck, pot providence, the, the, the desire here to have food provided. You know, there's an old joke about Southern Baptist ministries. The best way to get people to show up is to provide free food. And apparently the best way to get a crowd to appear for the Lord Jesus Christ was provide free food. And they kept asking for it. What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? He's really kind of laughing together about how clever they are. We're going to get a free meal out of this. It's going to be great. What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. I mean, just, just picking something random. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They are trying to take what Jesus is saying and find a way to twist it into a free meal. They are worshiping their stomachs. This desire for mammon and manna. And notice the taking of this spiritual teaching of Jesus and turning it into something physical, right? There's the worship, the gross, obvious vain worship of material goods where you say, I love God because he gives me stuff. And there's on the other side this idea that if we perform physical actions, it's going to magically, supernaturally, ex opere operato, by the work worked, give us something of God. Right? There's, there's both grotesque physical interpretations. So Rome, when it comes to this text, takes John 6 and makes it principally about The Lord's Supper. They say you have to eat the glucose wafer and drink the wine after the Reformation. Before then, lots of people didn't get the wine. But you have to eat the bread and drink the wine and do that physically after it's been transubstantiated at the ringing of the bell. That's when. And then when you take it, that gives you everlasting life, but you can lose it. So it's not really everlasting. Because if you commit a moral sin, it's over. And you need to go through confession and penance and then have your baptismal grace restored at the Mass. Okay, so that's an absurd interpretation of the text. It's not everlasting life. Jesus is attacking and mocking this grotesque physicality obsession. And he's also attributing this saving work to the sovereign work of God internally, spiritually, by the word Verse 30, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that you may see, we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. Okay, so manna physically came from above, right? And so it's bread from heaven in some sort of physical sense. But Jesus is saying expressly, I'm not talking about that. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay, the life to the world, the world there thinks similarly back to John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him may have everlasting life shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That dying for the world is not a dying for every individual. And this giving of life to the world is not a giving of life to every individual. Do <laughs> You see how you have to adopt a universalism if you think Jesus died to the, for the world, every individual, and gave life to everybody in the world. If you interpret both of those texts in the same way and you say it applies to every individual, you're stuck with universalism, which does not work does not cohere with what Jesus says elsewhere. So this dying for the world is dying for every nation. People from every nation. As opposed to just the nation of the Jews. And giving life to the world as opposed to just the Jews. The bread of life is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So this is pointing to the idea of the church going international. From just being a national body of Judea, of Israel, to being international. So the bread of life is Jesus. He comes down from heaven and he gives life to people from every nation. And that's going to result in the post hope of the knowledge of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. The whole world will be filled with the knowledge of God. There will be a way in which every family and every nation are covenanted with God. There will be an overwhelming filling of the earth with knowers of God. He will bring life to the world in a broad, visible way. Now, this discussion of the manna from heaven, by the way, Exodus 16 is the key text regarding to that. And it also has the first giving to us of the Sabbath after the giving of the Sabbath in Genesis 2. Genesis 2 has the Sabbath, and you don't really have the Sabbath come up again until Exodus 16. When there's the manna and God says collect two days portions on the sixth day so that you don't have to collect on the seventh day. And then you have the giving of the Sabbath law in Exodus 20. Okay, so that Exodus 16 text is an important part to show that it was a creation ordinance from creation even until the giving of the Sabbath later in the Mosaic law. It shows that there was a practice of it that was obligatory prior to the giving of the law at Sinai. So Jesus is the reality of the bread. The show bread in the temple, which is the bread of the presence, is a reminder of Christ as the bread. The, Lord, the bread in the Lord's Supper is a reminder of Christ as the bread. And the manna from heaven is a reminder of Christ as the bread. These are all signs. Those are not the reality. The reality is Christ himself. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. They still don't know what they're asking for. They think they're still asking for bread. Literal bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Can you imagine you were trying to get somebody to get this? Imagine you were explaining this. You're saying, Jesus is the bread of life. the, The exasperation there. Could you see why Jesus would want to go and be alone with God? I am the bread of life. Who comes to me, he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me, shall never thirst. Okay? He's saying, look, material, physical bread, you're going to be satisfied and you'll be hungry again. Material, physical drink, you're going to be satisfied and you'll be thirsty again. I am going to provide you with an everlasting fulfillment of your desire. Christ is the object and satisfaction of man's desire. He who comes to Christ shall never lack an ultimate satisfaction. He who believes in Christ shall never lack an ultimate satisfaction. And it will give you a satisfaction that even when lesser needs, even lesser desires are not fulfilled, that you will still be able to go through that suffering knowing that it is for your good. And so it removes the weight of it. It makes suffering lighter But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So they have seen with the physical eyes. (coughs) But they have not seen with the inward man. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice that. This verse 37 is a statement about the intra-Trinitarian covenant. The covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father gives the church to Jesus. He gives the elect to Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me. There are some who the Father does not give to the Son. And they do not come. But all the ones that are given do come. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Okay, so we're told that coming to the Son, believing in the Son, is the work of the Father. And it's given to the Son with the seal of the Father. So Jesus is the author of our faith. And we're also told that He won't cast us out because He preserves our faith. He perfects our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. The one who comes to Christ will by no means cast out. Christ will not cast Him out. He will not be removed. He will not be lost. He will be preserved. This is the basis of assurance. If You have faith, you know God will preserve your faith, and you will not be cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus came in this covenant with the Father to obey the Father. Not because he's inferior by his nature, but because he's accepted an inferior position of authority in the covenant between the members of the Trinity. He has come to die. He has come to obey. And he has come to fulfill the decrees of the Father. Everything the Father plans, the Lord Jesus Christ will accomplish. Everything He decrees, He will accomplish. Everything He commands, Christ will accomplish. He comes to fulfill the will of the Father. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all He has given me, I shall lose nothing. Okay, So the Father has decreed that all of the elect that are given to Christ Will not be lost. And Christ will fulfill it. He does not fail at any point. But should raise it up at the last day. This, There will be a physical death. And there will be a physical resurrection. But that occurs for the elect and the reprobate alike. What's being said here is. That there will be the elect. They are given to the Father. They come to They're given to the Son by the Father. They come to the Son by the gift of the Father. There is a work of the Son delegated by the Father to give them faith, to cause them to come to Christ. And and that's done by the work of the Holy Spirit. Sent by the Son. And there's a preserving that Christ will lose none of them. So that when He raises them up, all of them that were given faith will be raised up unto life. There is not a justification today that's different from the justification tomorrow. There's not a second justification that can differ from the declaration that you are righteous today. If God gives you faith, it is the instrument of justification. It connects you to the work of Christ. And you are righteous today. You'll be righteous tomorrow. You'll be righteous in the day of resurrection. You will not be lost. Not a one that has been given to the Son by the Father will be lost. That work of Christ to preserve and to defend is kingly work And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. There's that emphasis again on the last day. So if you have faith in the Christ of the Bible, you have everlasting life. And you will not be lost, and you will be raised to life. This is the golden chain that we see in Romans 8. All of those who are effectually called are irresistibly converted, they're regenerated, they're given life. They're justified, they're adopted, they're sanctified, and they will be glorified. And they will be raised into the resurrection of glory. There is no loss. Every step is certain. And that gives you a courage to be able to not be worried principally about the bread That rots, but to focus upon the bread that endures. All who see, all who understand and believe, the seeing with the mind, the understanding and the believing, all who understand and believe in Christ have everlasting life. And Christ will raise them up to the resurrection of life on the last day. The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? It is our duty, when we read scripture, to not read it with a foolish naivete, that always looks at things in terms of the physical. Jesus isn't saying that his physical body came down on a cloud from heaven and then he just popped up there in Nazareth. What he is saying is that there is a grant of authority and he's also talking about the Incarnation and so there's not an exploring here. This text is a text that makes plain. It is our duty, brethren, when we read the Scriptures To try to understand what is being said and to realize that not every word that is given is given to be most imminently digestible to the most meager of thought. We must search the scriptures and compare scripture with scripture. And we must consider these things and see that they are a system. And we must try to understand. And when we deal with teachers, we must do the same. We must listen to them and try to understand as they try to teach the system of truth, it is impossible to teach efficiently while explaining every point of doctrine at every stage. What you do is you teach things explicitly and you rely upon them to be able to build from there. I make an effort to teach explicitly in an increased way compared to other teachers in part because of the degree to which false doctrine reigns in our day. And in part because of the fact that there is basic, foundation laying that has to be done over and over again. But the goal is to figure out how to help people to have a catechesis and to be ready so that not every time that there's a need to deal with somebody who is grossly ignorant like these Jews coming to Christ that I'm the one that has to break the ground and go through every point with them. That is our work as a church. That is not just my work, that is our work. Our work is to eat the bread of life together, to believe what has been revealed and to share that bread with others. And so we work together to do that. And so fathers, you teach your families and parents, you teach your children. And you, if you have servants, your goal is to disciple them. And as you engage with people throughout the world, your goal is to disciple them. And as there are people coming in, your goal is to be hospitable and to teach and to lay things down and to talk to people and to share with each other. That idea of iron sharpening iron And of helping each other and carrying that burden and participating in the joy of spreading the knowledge of the truth together. This is what we are called to. It is a hard work. And as you do it, you will find yourself being able to relate to Jesus in a way that you could not before. Because of the pain and vexatiousness of the hard heartedness and slowness of unbelief. And you will also find that you have compassion for each other as you do the work and you see each other as you work in the ground and the thorns and thistles tear your hands and you bleed in working and as strife tears your soul and you see each other wounded you will have greater compassion for each other as you work and find that you suffer you will have greater compassion for each other in the working and so this example this text is a beautiful example of the doctrine of Jesus teaching the sovereign grace of God. And this text is a beautiful example of laying out for us his desire to not be man-pleasing. But it's also a beautiful example of the pain of strife as you deal with unbelief, even with those who call themselves fellow believers, fellow Jews, fellow Christians, fellow people. And by this, this idea of coming together, that there is this tendency, even amongst those who claim to be believers... To be slow to believe and to take up the word and to grumble at doctrine rather than trying to take it seriously and engage with it. So as we work together, it is my prayer that we will find ways of seeing each other wearied and lifting each other up. And that we will bless each other by helping each other in the work and being encouraged by seeing fellow workers in the field. And it is my hope that by working together, we will accomplish much more. So we'll continue in John six in the future with those things the sovereignty of God and salvation, the importance of not man pleasing, and the suffering that is caused by interacting with unbelief and fighting with it. These are things that I would draw your attention to. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members, and those with speaking rights.